This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Dmebre. And I'm Yannick Magnan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? HDMI 2.1, the PS5, and my new monitor. Ooh, new hardware. Yay! But before we start, we do have some follow-up. And uh, I'll more or less say that I have an administered note. So as Yannick mentioned in the last episode, uh, and as we've been doing in the past few years, we will be going on a summer hiatus. So just a quick note that after release the release of episode 187, which is on, Ju- which is on July 17th, we will take a more or less six-week hiatus. And we will be back on September 11th. Right on time for quote unquote uh the tech fall season and things like that so we will uh, recharge our batteries have fun during the summer and we will be back on in september for episode 188 yannick you have some follow-up okay i'm gonna go all the way back to episode 85 for this first one uh episode 85 was called star trek droid sounds and it was about me writing an alexa skill uh funnily enough it came up uh, this week because another team at work was working on a smart home app for iOS and Android with an associated Alexa skill and the skill wasn't making it through certification which is the uh, Alexa equivalent to App Store review hmm. and the person who originally wrote the skill left our company a month ago and no one else Oops. in the company knows how to write Alexa skills or how Alexa works at all uh, so I was brought on as, as an emergency helper to uh, help find the issue in the skill and fix it so that the app could be available across all of the platforms because they were four days behind on the intended launch date uh, the iOS and Android apps were already in their stores, but the Alexa skill was still not available. So just a cool example of how weird side projects you don't think are ever going to be useful for anything uh, can randomly come in handy at times. Uh, I think it's the first time that uh, something I've done specifically for the podcast was randomly relevant uh, to something at work. So that's cool. Hey, it is cool. Now, uh, when you update your CV, you can say, I wrote an Alexa skill and ship it to the store. Uh, it's true, yeah. I mean, I didn't really write this skill <laughs> no, that no, shipped, but, but I saved you it. Wrote, <laughs> you wrote an Alexa skill for the podcast, and then you shipped one that yeah. was more or less completed for work. Both parts of that sentence are true. They are just not Agreed. about the same thing. <laughs> Agreed. Next up is some breaking news follow-up from for episode 119, which was Mako number 5 about Final Fantasy mm. 7. Uh, I love this title. I do too. Uh, part 2 in the Final Fantasy 7 remake trilogy, Final Fantasy 7 Rebirth, was announced shortly before we started recording tonight. Uh, that's Ooh. going to be releasing next winter, so I'm assuming holiday season 2023. I will put a link in the show notes uh, to the trailer. I would recommend not watching the trailer unless you've beaten Final Fantasy 7 Remake already or you know the big twist (laughs) or you listen to our episode i guess uh no this is remake specific so oh okay so i guess i have to uh, to finally play remake at some point yes uh also crisis core final fantasy 7 which is the only final fantasy game to be inspired by patchy slot gambling is getting a remake this winter so i'm very excited about that and no one else is uh Thank you very much for that during the stream. Uh, next element of follow-up is for episode 150, All My Friends Have Home Pods, which was our episode about Stadia. Uh, 
one of the early hyped features for Stadia and cloud uh, cloud game streaming was the idea that you could uh, put a link in an ad somewhere uh, that could take you directly to a playable demo of the game that you're advertising. And last week, I found out that Resident Evil uh, Resident Evil Eight Village has been doing this. It's the only game, as far as I know, that has embraced this technology since the launch of Stadia. Uh, and I will put a link to the playable RE8 demo in the show notes. I have not had the time to actually sit down and play it, so I can't talk about it. I know I sent it to you. I don't know if you've had time to play it. No, I guess the podcast is a good reminder that I also had, didn't have that much time to play it. And you were bringing at the point, I was like, why is he talking about, oh, crap, I forgot to click on the link and play the game. So I guess I might be doing that right after recording. Who knows? Interesting. Uh, yeah, I'll have to uh, report back with my impressions of that, but I'm just very interested to see that um, finally in action because a lot of things that were first announced alongside Stadia have never manifested. Uh, so, so far, I think we've had two pieces of follow-up of various features that have finally shown up somewhere. Uh, maybe there will be more in the future. It's kind of strange, though, because it feels like Stadia is pretty much abandoned and mm-hmm. somehow they're still coming up with these things. Uh, last, I have some follow-up for episode 170, which was called Boomer Complaint, which funnily enough, on the last episode, you told me that I was plugging that name to make it a title when you should have known that it was already a title. Uh, <laughs> okay, I, I'd like to stop you there and follow up because the last three items, well, including this one, the last three items of follow-up all have names that I'm 100% sure you plugged in the episode just to, for them to be titles. So Wow, so rude. All my friends <laughs> have HomePods is a reply to something you said on the show. I couldn't have plugged it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuses, excuses. Anyway, that episode was about learning AppKit as an iOS developer. And uh, we've gotten some good news in the last week. The Swift UI table that launched last year on the Mac is now finally available on iPad OS this year. Uh, so that will definitely go into my uh, calculus determining whether or not I use Swift UI for the uh, iPad version of Cezura, uh, which is a topic we will no doubt discuss later this year. So look forward to that. We might even talk about that specific control next in the next episode. Oh, there you go. I didn't even think so, but... There you go. Let's move on to the main topic, which is my new monitor, kind of. Uh, So for my birthday, I got a Newegg gift card because I had asked for one. And uh, I had been looking at a more modern display because it had been, I think, like eight years since I had gotten uh, my previous display. And I was ready for an upgrade, especially with the PS5 and all that stuff. Uh, So I had been shopping around, and the monitor that I decided on was the Gigabyte M32U. Uh, it's a 32 inch 4k IPS monitor. It has a pixel density of 140 PPI. It has up to 144 Hertz refresh rate, and it does HDR up to 600 nits. Uh, it has four video inputs, one display port, two HDMI 2.1 and one USB-C, and it has a built-in three port USB-A hub for KVM functionality. Really cool display. Uh, usually you can find it around $1,200, uh, I think like the average going price is maybe, oh, th- that was Canadian dollars, by the way. Uh, a lot of the times you'll see it for sale around a thousand or sometimes a little bit lower than that. Uh, some, if you're looking for the 28 inch model of this, uh, display, which is the M28U, oftentimes it's more expensive 
than uh, this one is, uh, which I imagine is only because the DPI is higher because I can't really understand why it would be the case otherwise. Uh, it, it's a really cool display. Uh, I, with my gift card and with a sale that had been ongoing and literally finished on my birthday, like a couple hours after I got the gift card, uh, I got this display for under a thousand dollars with tax, hmm. which is a really good deal. Uh, so that was really cool. And, uh, it enables a whole bunch of cool stuff that the PS5 is able to do because the PS5 is HDMI 2.1 compliant. And, that's sort of what this entire episode is about. We're going to talk about monitor-specific stuff as well at the end, but mostly it's about, hey, what's HDMI 2.1 capable of, and uh, how does that actually manifest in reality when you actually hook up a PS5 to one of these monitors? So let's start off by talking about the actual capabilities of HDMI 2.1. HDMI 2.1 is a spec that I believe dates all the way back to 2017, although you didn't really see anything ship that actually made use of it until 2020. Uh, It it supports up to 10K at 120 hertz, uh, although when you're looking at resolutions higher than 1440p, you may have to use display stream compression to actually be able to fit it down the wire. It has support for variable refresh rate to reduce stutter frame tearing and lag in video games and this is going to be a big tentpole feature for this episode uh there's this thing called auto low latency mode which can essentially automatically turn on game mode on compatible displays and televisions uh so basically like it's harder to fuck up your configurations uh this does have some unforeseen consequences on certain tvs because sometimes you the TV is low lag enough that you don't actually want game mode to be enabled because that disables other settings that you may actually be interested in. So there's some weird uh, controversy around ALLM. Uh, But what's interesting about HDMI 2.1 is the amount of issues that there have been with the launch of HDMI 2.1. And you'll quickly realize that this very closely resembles my complaints about modern day USB. Uh, (laughs) So... First off, compatible cables are way too hard to tell apart. Uh, so th- this is an this is very similar to the situation with USB. There's no such thing as an HDMI 2.1 cable. There is such a thing as a 48 gigabits per second or ultra high speed cable, which is the highest theoretical bandwidth required by HDMI 2.1. But the content that runs over that cable can be speaking any version of HDMI as long as it provides sufficient bandwidth for what it's trying to do which makes labeling the cables extremely complicated. And of course, uh, cables are very rarely externally identified as any given bandwidth class. Like there's nothing on the cable that says 48 gigabits per second anywhere, nor is there really an easy way to test them and verify what the bandwidth of the cable is if you don't remember which cables are which. Uh, So that really sucks. And that very much uh, mimics what's going on with USB. You can look at a USB-C cable and have no idea if it's only a charging cable, if it's a USB 2 cable that isn't using USB-C connectors, if it's a USB 3, 3 3.1, 3.2, 3.2 Gen B, uh, all of the new names that they've done with revised bullshit. Is it a Thunderbolt cable? Who the fuck knows? They all look the same. Uh, And that's a problem. Another thing that sort of mimics USB is that many parts of the spec are optional to implement, which means it's very difficult and costly to find devices that implement everything. Uh, If you're running your devices through switchers or capture cards, each link in the chain needs to to comply with all the features that you're trying to use. Uh, If any of the components in the chain does not, the chain breaks, and therefore you can't use that feature, and that fucking sucks. Uh, 
Uh, also, like modern USB, it's possible to use protocol extensions to implement custom behaviors that are not technically officially part of the HDMI spec, uh, which means if you're using protocol extensions, whether you know it or not, uh, your equipment also needs to support those protocol extensions. Otherwise, they just stop working. Uh, this is something that may come into play later. One of the big issues with HDMI 2.1 specifically is that one of the early HDMI 2.1 chipsets uh, that one of the chip makers had made had a critical flaw in its implementation, which made most HDMI 2.1 AV receivers completely incompatible with current gen game consoles, <laughs> which is kind of an issue because those are kind of the only devices supporting HDMI 2.1 right now. Um there have been hardware replacement programs for AV receivers using this chipset, but it is very difficult to know ahead of time if you're buying the updated stock or if you're using, uh, if you're buying an unsold incompatible unit ahead of time, and it can waste a lot of time on your end trying to figure out which is which. And a lot of people have basically have their entire trust in HDMI 2.1 shattered by this because you never know if the device you're buying is using this chipset and is going to have the same issues as the AV receivers you've seen in the past. And you don't necessarily know if they have a hardware replacement program in place. So people are just scared of HDMI 2.1, which is a really bad issue. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised right now with chip shortages and things like that, that the replacement hardware might take weeks or months to come in. Yep, and I think there was an Onkyo AV receiver that had issues, and I think Onkyo went bankrupt in the last month or something. So, like, that's <sighs> also happening. Uh, so, Fun. yeah, it's like if you were interested in getting an AV receiver because you have a home theater system or uh, you're just looking for a no nonsense switcher that supports HDMI 2.1, and right now AV receivers are kind of the only ones that do that. Uh, you have a very hard time finding one that's any good. So I'm going to go through the big tent poles of uh, what this display has enabled in my setup, starting with resolution, uh, which of course is 4K. And I want to start off by talking about it on the PS5. Obviously, uh, 4K, just in new numbers-wise, is a big improvement over 1080p. Um... I wasn't sure what to expect. I wasn't sure if it was going to be a huge deal or if it was going to be uh, diminishing returns or whatever. Overall, I do think it's still a big improvement above 1080p, especially when you're looking at game UIs that are rendered at native 4K. I'm thinking specifically here of the menus in Gran Turismo 7. Uh, they look absolutely amazing in 4K. Uh, and it reminds me very much of using a Retina iPhone for the first time. And I mean, like, it makes sense because I think a lot of people who liked the old skeuomorphic Apple design also really like Polyphony Digital's approach to design because there are a lot of parallels in how they do things. Uh, and I think uh, Gran Turismo 7 looks really, really good in 4K, uh, even when you're pixel peeping and all of that stuff. And it made me feel everything I felt when I got that Retina iPhone the first time. That said, when we're talking about gameplay specifically and not like menu assets, uh, I have to say that we're reaching what uh, Digital Foundry calls the uh, post-resolution era. Hmm. There are a lot of reasons for this. So dynamic resolution scaling is built into most game engines to keep frame rates high. Uh, so when you're in the highest uh, amount of action scenes where you have a lot of uh, rendering load and all that stuff, generally games will downscale the resolution they're rendering at and then upscale that to fit within their frame time budgets. Uh, that mostly is a change that we saw over the PS4 Pro era 
where uh, they couldn't necessarily bring 4K uh, resolutions all the time, but they could say, well, we're going to target 1440p and upscale that, but in, in times where we can't actually meet the frame budget, we'll go down to 1080p and upscale that, right? So dynamic resolution scaling is basically everywhere. Uh, upscaling techniques and image reconstruction algorithms have gotten really, really good. Uh, you can take 1440p and make it look really good in 4K. You can take uh, even lower resolutions than that and use image reconstruction algorithms, especially things like DLSS, which take basically like metadata about what was rendered and do a smart upscale to a higher resolution and make it look really, really good, even though you're rendering it like 720p under the hood. It's kind of amazing. Because these techniques are so good, generally the artifacting is too small to resolve with the naked eye, and it's very hard to notice in motion, which is great. And then there's even newer techniques than that, like uh, VRS, variable rate shading, which is completely absurd. And a lot of the times, like when people describe these techniques, you're like, you need an awful lot of metadata to actually like get this to work. And it's fascinating that you can actually like do that that fast but what variable rate shading basically does is it kind of acts like a video codec and it looks at uh, the image that is about to be rendered and says well where can we actually like dynamically reduce detail in this image so that the user can't really tell that we reduce detail Uh, so Hmm. if you have like a large area that is mostly red uh, it's going to be like well most of this is just very similar shades of red so instead of doing the hard work to calculate which the exact shades of red it should be we're just going to paint it at half resolution and they won't be able to tell the difference Uh, so even with like full resolution images you can do vrs which dynamically changes the resolution of different parts of the image to trick the eye into thinking that it looks uh it looks completely completely rendered perfectly but it's not actually i'm very worried about vrs because like i said video codec for a reason like i can imagine you can get to some really bad situations where there are big macro blocks of like uh, dark gray and stuff on dark scenes so that i'm afraid of that but so far it hasn't really shown up anywhere so i think because of all of these things i think there's no real purpose in pushing beyond 4k for gaming uh, I know 8K is written on the PS5 box. <laughs> uh, t- technically, I don't think there's any way for the PS5 to actually output 8K, which is a little bit Why? dishonest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is it on the box then? Yeah. Uh, there's technically one 8K game on PS5, although it is rendering at 8k and downscaling to 4k for anti-aliasing and it's kind of like minecrafty graphics so it's not super demanding which is why they can do it um but yeah i think like because of all of these techniques uh being put in place like i can play 1440p games and not really tell the difference between 1440p and 4k at times so these techniques are really really good and i hope that over the decades to come uh, the focus in the gaming industry will return to frame rates instead of resolution. And like, there's a whole frame rate section in this episode for a reason. We'll talk more about that later. Do you have any notes on resolution on PS5? No, no. I'm pretty happy that you are enjoying it. And I, I would tend to agree with you that you... like Again, I don't have a PS5, but my experience with my 4K TV is with 4K content, like you, you see a better HD version. That and it's not as drastic 
compared from SD. And I think that's yeah. what Digital Friendly is hinting at. Is like SD to HD was mind-boggling better. Uh, that's not the same case. I would tend to think, though, that with HDR and... We are. There's a whole section on that too. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So maybe I won't go into that much detail with HDR, but for sure, sure I really enjoy more Dolby Vision content. Wink, wink. Uh, That I do see a difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, One thing I forgot to mention in this section is uh, you can still play like games that render at 1080p. For example, I tried playing Splitgate the other day uh, on PS5, which is technically a PS4 back compat game, which only runs at 1080p. And, like, that does look bad on uh, 4K really? display. Well, I mean, it looks bad in the same way that, like, 1X apps looked on the iPhone 4 the first year, mm. which is, like, you can tell that it's pixelated compared to what you're used to. Whereas if I was playing it on a native 1080p display, I wouldn't be able to tell because it's at native res. But here I can just tell that everything is just a bit blockier than it should be. And like that bugs me when I'm looking at things. I would rather it be like smoothed out or whatever. Um, right, right. And is it is it just running at native 1080p or it's also using some kind of upscaling to still be sent at 4K? The image being rendered is 1080p, and then the PS5 operating system or whatever just 2x's the buffer so that it fits 4K. Mm, okay, so there's not really upscaling. It's not a fancy upscaling. It's literally <laughs> integer scaled. Right, right, okay. And why it's blurry? It's not blurry. It's blocky. It's mm. literally, mm. It, like, there's no scaling at all. It's literally, we doubled the size of the pixel. Right, right, okay. Now I got, now I got you. Yeah. If they had used, like, bicubic scaling, it would have been fine, probably, but they didn't. Um, okay, moving on to RetroTink, uh, which is going Ooh. to be a short section because, uh, well, you'll see. So with newer firmware, RetroTink can actually go all the way up to 4K 30 FPS or 1440p 60 FPS. So 4K 30 is like relatively recent. It was, I believe, an April update. Uh, It's an experimental feature. Basically, like what happened is uh, Mike Chi is crazy and just implements features for the hell of it. And he was like, (laughs) I want to see how high I can push the resolution on existing RetroTink 5X hardware. And the furthest he could get is basically you can play N64 at 4K. Wow. Um, Because no games on N64 go higher than 30, really. Like, there are a few, but very few Uh do. Uh, So, like, that's basically the demo system for this feature. Uh, And, of course, like, if you're playing, like, PlayStation games, there are plenty of games that are 30 or whatever. But, like, you can't do 60. There just isn't enough power in the 5X hardware to actually do it. In fact your retro tank gets a little bit hot if you do it at 4k 30 whereas it doesn't at other resolutions so it's really pushing it to the maximum um it's still cool that it can do it and it's there as an experimental feature you have to go enable a special flag to actually even see it in the ui but it's there uh 1440p 60 fps like that's just written on the box it's actually the 6x that uh you get out of uh retro tank even though it's called the 5x uh Unfortunately, my current setup routes my HDMI switcher, which is 4K60 capable, into a 1080p capture card pass-through, which means I can't set my RetroDink higher than 1080p, otherwise I get no signal. Uh, What's fine, though, is that 1080p is an integer scale to 4K, 
uh, and it's the highest resolution I can play at 60 FPS with an integer scale. So I accept that trade-off and I just deal with it. It looks great anyway. Uh, I haven't actually tried just unplugging the capture card and putting the RetroTINK directly into, or my switcher directly into my monitor and trying the 1440p resolution, mainly because I'm afraid I'm going to like it too much and that I'm going to buy stuff to actually <laughs> make it work. Uh-oh. Okay, so you're meaning buying a new capture card. No, no, no. So what I could do is instead of running the switcher output through the capture card pass-through, I could get an HDMI splitter that would let me hook it up to the monitor where it would accept all of the resolutions I can handle. And then to the capture card, which would only see the signal if I switched it to 1080p. So if I was capturing, Uh... I could go switch it. And since I use the presets on the RetroTINK, I could actually set a preset that is a capture preset that outputs as 1080p. So I would be able to switch very easily. I see, I see. Uh, And I already have capture presets, actually, because normally I play with scan lines on, but you generally don't want scan lines on when you're capturing. So it would Mm -hmm. just be changing the resolution and it would be fine. So that's what's going on with RetroTank. Basically, uh, on paper, I could go higher, but... I would have to rearrange my setup and get more hardware. So right now I'm just using it exactly the same way I was on my old setup, and it's fine. Let's talk about resolution on Mac. I am using the first scaling mode from the left, which means it is not native res. It is the one after that. Uh, in practice, what this means is I'm rendering 1440p at 2x and then scaling down to 2160p container. Uh, the UI elements right now on my display has a, have a very similar physical size to what they were on my 1080p 24-inch display before when it was running at native res. And honestly, like for all the bitching I do about uh, the scaling, if I'm not pixel peeping, I honestly can't tell the difference. So it's fine. I, 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 see, I, I cannot speak right now. You always bitch about the scale mode on the laptops and things like that, and now you're using one. Yeah, I know. I'm disappointed in myself, too. <laughs> I am also disappoint- <laughs> disappointed, too, in yourself, but hey, that's life. Uh, let's talk about the gaming PC now. Uh, high DPI is still implemented very inconsistently on Windows, and actually, if you use uh, multiple displays on Windows, you may also know the funny thing where you're dragging display uh windows from one display to another and they either show up very very tiny on your target display or very very big until you drop them (laughs) and then they scale (laughs) it's so funny it makes me laugh every time uh i don't actually know what scaling mode my pc is running at it kind of looks like the 1440p mode that i'm using on uh the mac but i don't think it's actually written that anywhere it just says 2160p and i'm not quite sure i understand um I think it might be doing a decimal scale, so like maybe like 1.2, 1.5 scale mm. up, uh, which might explain why some shit looks completely artifacted, though I will also mention that because it's quote-unquote a gaming PC, uh, I ran a bunch of optimizations that make shit ugly on purpose, uh, so I don't know if my optimizations are to blame or if it's the uh, decimal scale at that point. Um, and but the the games all run fine and they look great. Yeah, ultimately when I'm playing full screen game, I'm lowering the resolution anyway because I'm playing on integrated graphics. So all oh, right, right. I'm playing on 1080p or lower anyway, so it's not a huge deal. Though I will mention that uh, because this is an IPS panel, I meant I love the punchiness of the colors. Uh, mm. I I'm a big IPS fan, so 
I, I love that. Okay, now we've talked about uh, resolution. I want to talk about frame rate, or uh, in the case of the PS5, 120 FPS. So this is something that I'm pretty much new to. I know that uh, we've talked about ProMotion a couple times on the show, and basically my thing is on the iPad, surprisingly, I can't tell really that ProMotion is there at all. I'm so happy to say that. Yeah. Because it's the same for me. Like, I was, and I still use, wait, yeah, the 10.5 is ProMotion? I don't know which ones are, and I'm just iPad Pro all the way. Right, and I, I think that was the case, is that I had one iPad that was ProMotion, and I have one that is not, and I was like, I don't see the difference. So yes, for sure, I guess, like, if you put them side by side, but when people mentioned online that when they were moving to away from a ProMotion iPad, they would see it. I was like, not my case whatsoever. The one app where I notice it is TweetBot. Like that is the only app where I notice a difference. And honestly, with the size of the iPhone display, I don't think it would be that significant a different if, difference if to me if my iPhone was ProMotion or not. Um, I, I can mostly tell the difference in TweetBot because the scrolling in TweetBot is fantastic and because the screen is so big. But otherwise, in basically every other application, I don't see really the difference that ProMotion brings, which had me scared that I was going to spend all this money on a 144 hertz display and I was not going to see the difference. (laughs) Right. And yes, by the way, I looked and it is the iPad Pro 10.5 inch. So that's the only iPad device that I own that is ProMotion because the rest are either normal iPads or my personal iPads and iPad Air. So I don't miss it whatsoever. Well, what I can tell you is that when we're talking about games in a native 120 FPS, I can absolutely tell the difference. Uh, so the game that I used to test this was Destiny 2 PvP. Uh, so the PvP mode runs in 120 FPS because it is, I guess, the only mode where they can have a realistic expectation of how bad it's going to get at any given time. Uh, whereas like they would have to limit a lot of stuff in the game design uh, if they were doing it to the full campaign. Uh, because PvP is basically four versus four teams at all times, you know how many people can pop their super abilities at once. There are no random enemies jumping in the way that have particle effects. It's literally just like eight players max. You know what your worst case budget is going to be, and you can design your maps around that. The first time I actually went to enable the feature, I could not tell the difference. And the reason for that is because the menu in Destiny 2 to enable this thing is in a confusing way where I didn't actually enable it. <laughs> so I was, I was like, about to say that. Is that really because you didn't enable it or you enable it and then disable it right after it because the menu is confusing? Yeah, the, the menu was just... Like it. It, it, I, I'm just used to changing the setting and pressing the back button and it saves automatically and whatever. And like this had like a separate confirm button or something that I didn't see. So I played my first match and I was like, that felt exactly the same. I'm very disappointed that I'm not able to see 120 FPS. <laughs> and then I went back to the menu and saw it was disabled and I re-enabled it properly this time. And immediately I was like, oh, okay, no, this is very different. <laughs> And uh, the big thing that makes this even more jarring is that remember the Destiny 1 and Destiny 2 on base PS4 
well actually ps4 pro as well ran at 30 fps um because right, right. the game even on ps4 pro like the game was so cpu bound that uh it didn't matter that the gpu was much better on the ps4 pro it couldn't actually go faster than 30 fps because the G, uh, the cpu was the bottleneck uh here it appears that the ps5 just doesn't give a shit and it can just run at 120 at least when it's (laughs) pvp because you don't have any enemies that have ai to run and complex logic on the maps or whatever right right. so that's really cool to see like basically a uh, 4x jump from what i was previously used to uh it's insane you can frag like a maniac in 120 fps it's a lot of fun i recommend it uh so that's cool but wait a sec if you were used to play at 30 fps the jump in the default, let's put it this way: in the default mode on the PS5 is still 60, right? Yeah, or what we were playing on Stadia was 60 as well. Okay, and do you feel that the jump from 30 to 60 was bigger, smaller than the jump to 60 to? I would say they are equivalent. Okay. Yeah, um, I think like it, 30 to 60 is hugely significant, and I feel like. And, and this is the weird thing. Like, I've spent so much time. I've literally spent thousands of hours for, in <laughs> Destiny 1 um, in 30 FPS, where, like, even when I was playing uh, Destiny 2 at 60, something felt off for, for a really mm-hmm. long time because I'm, I just have so much muscle memory. Now, I've, like, I'm so distant from the Destiny 1 days that it doesn't matter. I can just jump into 120 FPS and it feels perfectly fine. Um but yeah, I, th- I feel like it would have been extremely jarring if you had given me this like five years ago. <laughs> okay, now I want to talk about Insomniac games. Uh, Insomniac games like Ratchet and Clank. Uh, what's the subtitle of the game? Hang on, I'm looking on my. Tell phone. me. I- I'm just. It's kind of funny. I think when Rift you. Apart. Oh, yes, but I think you blank on the name when you did the PS5 intro, uh, the first impression in February. You're like, yeah, Ratchet and Clank, something, something. Yeah, it's so, <laughs> such a forgettable subtitle. But yeah, uh, Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, uh, as I mentioned on that episode when we talked about the game, it has a 40 hertz mode on uh, if you have a 120 hertz capable display. Basically, what this means is, uh, for, sorry, 40 hertz quality mode. So PS5 has enough headroom to actually be able to run the full quality mode at a 40 FPS cap instead of 30 FPS. Uh, What effectively this does is it renders a frame and then it displays it for three frames in a row, adding to 120 FPS. Uh, And what this does is generally makes the game feel about 30% smoother than it does in regular quality mode on 120 FPS displays. The problem with this is that it coexists in this, in the same game with uncapped VRR. And when you can experience 40 hertz and 100 hertz in the same game, in where you can change the option in the same menu, you don't really ever want to touch the 40 hertz mode. So I'm going to explain very quickly what VRR is and how it works. Uh, most console games... Oh, VRR, variable refresh rate. Okay. Most console games have something called VSync enabled. What VSync means is that every 16 milliseconds in a 60 FPS game, 
If there is a full frame rendered and ready to go, it will be sent to the display. If a frame takes longer to render than the budget of 16 milliseconds, the previous frame is repeated, leading to what we call in the industry a frame drop. If you go to the PC instead, most PC games have VSync disabled. This means that the buffer gets sent to the screen whether it finished rendering or not. If it didn't finish rendering, it, uh, you have image tearing, which basically shows you like it rendered up to here and then you see the old frame <laughs> right where the tear line is. Um, if the screen tear is near the bottom of the screen, which means that the frame had almost finished rendering and nothing critical is displayed there, uh, this can be a nice way to prioritize the responsiveness of your display over the quality of any individual frame you capture, let's say. Uh, so VRR is a technology that tries to go for the advantages of both. You want to guarantee that you're always getting complete frames, but you don't want any tearing. And instead of the graphics pipeline trying to fit its rendering within the refresh interval of the monitor, instead the graphics pipeline controls the monitor's refresh rate so it lines up with when it's done rendering. (laughs) And this leads to a significantly better experience when you're running at frame rates between 45 and 120 frames per second, or as high up as your monitor can handle here because I'm talking about a GMI 2.1, it's 120 FPS. So I mentioned 45 FPS for a reason. Uh, if you go lower than 45 FPS, it's very hard to actually get VRR working properly. So generally, uh, when you go lower than 45 FPS, uh, some games implement something called low frame rate compensation, uh, which basically just says I'm above 45, so I'm just going to double the output of the frame or triple the output of the frame so that it fits within a, 40, a 45 to 120 FPS range. I don't know if you heard, but there was a lot of drama and confusion around the PS5 implementation of VRR. You could have ended sentence of like, if you heard about a lot of drama, it's like, yeah, I heard about a lot of drama around anything, but uh, I didn't hear specifically about the VR in the PS5. Oh, you're lucky. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, I guess you need to come on my side of the internet where people don't complain about that maybe uh so there was a lot of complaining around the bs5's vrr mode and i quickly want to explain what the issue is in case you've heard about it and are curious as to why people are bitching uh vrr has been in the gaming monitor market in one form or another since 2013 uh in january 2013 they introduced displayport 1.2 a adaptive sync uh which was for pc games uh nobody really used that uh because uh, NVIDIA announced a proprietary version of that called G-Sync in October, of which the, obviously the NVIDIA graphics cards and displays, uh, display partners supported. Uh, so DisplayPort Adaptive Sync never really got it time. It's time to shine. Uh, in January of 2014, AMD got sort of jealous. Uh, so they developed FreeSync, which was an improvement on DP 1.2A's uh, Adaptive Sync, but it was made royalty free. So anyone could implement it in their hardware and it didn't have to be proprietary like NVIDIA's, which is kind of good. Uh, in late 2015, they introduced FreeSync over HDMI 1.2. Uh, and they did this as a protocol extension. So as I mentioned earlier, they can add their own extensions to the HDMI uh protocol as they want the problem is if you want to do that everything on the chain needs to support that protocol extension for it to be good 
And then in January of 2017, they uh, revised FreeSync to uh, give it FreeSync Premium Pro, which is a horrible name, uh, but that is just their uh, marketing name to say, hey, we support VRR with HDR at the same time, because previously you couldn't do both at once. You had to do hmm. a choice of one or the other. Now, this is where it gets complicated. HDMI 2.1 has its own distinct VRR implementation from FreeSync Premium Pro, but as I mentioned earlier, HDMI 2.1 devices never really shipped until mid-2020. And then the Xbox One and Xbox Series devices, they support all FreeSync implementations over HDMI. PS5 does not. It only supports HDMI 2.1. So anybody who bought into a FreeSync monitor is really pissed right now because they feel like Xbox loves them and PS5 does not. I'm going to say something that might anger some people here, but contrary to a lot of other Sony communication where they are vague and stupid, they have always been very clear that they only ever intended to support HDMI 2.1. So it's not like they were dishonest or misrepresenting things. It's just people are pissed because they didn't get the thing that supports the monitor they already have, even though Sony said they were never going to support their monitors. Hmm. It reminds me of something. It reminds you of uh, Stage Manager? <laughs> huh. Funny you mentioned Stage Manager. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about that too this week. Um, but yeah, it's it's very funny. Um, but ultimately, I, f- I feel like if you actually read the things that Sony was posting, like this was not a surprise to anybody. It, I mean, it sucks if you have a freezing monitor, but it shouldn't be a surprise. And you, it's, it, I feel like it's dumb to act offended at, as if it was a surprise when it clearly was not, and there is proof that it was not. So in the end, they were pretty kissing, not we support VR from HDMI 2.0. They just said, we support HDMI 2.0, and you kind of have to assume that it meant we only support those feature set, but not FreeSync. Well, they, they said, because originally the PS5 did not ship with VR support built in. It was a patch hmm. that was added a few months ago, like two months ago. Oh. Uh, so... When they were always explaining, like, this patch is coming and it's going to add support for HDMI 2.1 VRR. (laughs) Oh. That that was the terminology they used. And, of course, like, you can't... (laughs) If you don't know that HDMI 2.1 VRR is a different technology than FreeSync, maybe that's what's going on. But they were never just saying, we're going to support VRR, period. And then it's, like, open to interpretation. It's like, no, we're going to support HDMI 2.1 VRR, which is a specific implementation. And they support exactly Mm -hmm. that. So I think Sony was clear. Maybe the people who were reading it don't know their tech. Right. The follow-up question, though, is which monitor supports HDMI 2.1 VR? I guess not that much monitors. Basically, gaming monitors that have been... released since mid 2020 so not that much there are still a lot of them it's just like they're the new ones so they're more expensive right right like no i I get that it meant for a lot of people you need to buy a new shit yeah but it could have been too that you need to buy something new that is not available because there was five monitors produced and we're still waiting for no, somebody that, to produce them. You have a lot of choices on the market. Okay. It's just they're expensive because HDMI 2.1 features cost a lot to implement. <laughs> mm, I see, I see. 
so now that we've explained what VRR is, I want to talk about uh, the games that I tried with VRR. So uh, unfortunately, like I, so here's one limitation of the VRR thing that some people are disappointed by that I think is a fair reason to be disappointed with, uh, which is on Xbox One and Xbox Series, the VRR implementation is at the OS level because when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Xboxes run Windows, and Windows is a desktop environment that runs the game within it, so it needs to support the VRR at the system level because you could be playing the game in windowed mode. Makes sense. Mm. So Xbox One does it at the OS level, which means if you're playing Xbox 360 games and backward compatibility, they have VRR support. If you're playing... Like, it, it doesn't matter. The game doesn't need to support it. It's If you have VR enabled, it is system-wide. This is not the case for PS5. By default, VR is only enabled on games that have VRR patches. There is a switch where you can force it to run on any PS5 game. This does not apply to PS4 back combat games, unfortunately. Which means hmm. I don't have a huge library of PS5 games to test with. I have literally two. And, like, the PS Plus games, but, like, half of them aren't even interesting, so I didn't install them. Uh, so, and out of the two, do they have their VR patch? So, I, I've got one of each. So, I've got one that is patched and one that is not patched. And hmm. I think I have the best not-patched game to talk about as well. So, the game that was patched is, of course, Insomniac's Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart. Mm -hmm. uh, the game was updated for VR and basically, like... If you have VR enabled in the uh, system menu, all of the modes automatically become VRR, which means even the 40 hertz mode technically becomes a VRR mode where it can technically hit frame rates slightly above 40, uh, depending on the state of the system. Uh, if you go into performance RT mode, which was previously a 60 FPS mode, now it runs between 80 and 100 which is huh. really fucking good for a mode with ray tracing. Uh, and the Spider-Man games have also been uh, updated with the Ooh. same adjustments, and they achieve similar frame rates when using VRR. Uh, so Insomniac has done a tremendous job. They've also implemented a low frame rate compensation. So if you're playing on the quality modes and uh, you're below 45 FPS, it doesn't matter. It will automatically do the right thing, which is not true about all games. Uh, so VR implementation in the Insomniac games in particular is absolutely fantastic. Now, when you're playing through it, it feels very fluid. You never notice any frame drops because the entire point of uh, VR is that you don't notice frame drops and everything is always smooth all the time. And that is exactly how it feels to be playing that mode. It's just, it feels faster than 60 FPS and it feels very responsive and it's awesome. The other game I want to talk about, which is not patched, is Elden Ring. <laughs> so... Uh, fans of From Software know that From Software sucks at the technical side of making video games. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Every video game that they've made since the PS3 era with the original Demon Souls have had broken 30 FPS caps. Uh, and by broken, I mean they are incapable of programming a 30 FPS cap that has smooth frame pacing, so it feels completely juddery and awful to play, uh, which is why I generally don't play 30 FPS from software games, because they're terrible. Um, despite being one of the biggest games of the year, Elden Ring didn't fare much better in the technical department. Uh, it tries to run at 60 FPS on PS5, but it really struggles. Uh, in fact, most people I know were playing the PS4 version on PS5 just to get a more stable frame rate. Wow. Yeah, and of course, you had to buy the PS4 version of the game to get that. If you bought the PS5 version on disc, sorry, you only have the PS5 version, you're screwed. 
so naturally VRR is a huge help to Elden Ring's stability. And in fact, I think a lot of people have speculated that they they really pushed the accelerator pedal on the VRR patch when they saw that Elden Ring was not running very stable on PS5 uh, because it was like announced that the patch was coming, I think, the week or two weeks after Elden Ring came out. Uh, and previously, we had no timeline for when VRR was coming. So I think they really like wanted to get it out for Elden Ring when they saw how bad it was. Unfortunately, like, I mean, it's a big improvement to Elden Ring stability. It's not perfect. There are unfortunately a lot of drops still below 45 FPS, which push it out of the effective VRR range. And because it's an unpatched game, uh, the game doesn't have low rate compensation, uh, low frame rate compensation, which means when it drops below 45 FPS, it just behaves like a normal triple buffer VSync game. And it just feels as bad as it did before. Uh, But when you're in that sweet range between 45 and 120, well, 45 and 60 when you're talking about uh, Elden Ring, since it's not a 120 FPS game, it feels very smooth. It's just, it drops enough below 45 FPS that it's not completely smooth and it's still kind of a bothersome experience. So the thing is, like, from software could make a VRR patch and they could add frame a low frame rate compensation to their game and this would fix basically all of the smoothness issues the problem is if they can't implement 30 fps cap i doubt that they can do this which is more complicated <laughs> than the 30 fps patch like it would be very appreciated if they could do it correctly but i have zero confidence in their ability to do so because that is not what they do they are very very good at mechanical game design they are terrible at technical side of gaming uh and like I mean, Elden Ring was the biggest game for a while, so we actually got to see people like reverse engineer the game and show us that, like, oh yeah, the reason the game runs like shit is because there are like tons of assets under the ground that you can't see that are already loaded and other stuff like that. And it's like, why did you have to do this? Um, but yeah, El- Elden Ring is much better with VRR on uh, than it was without, but there are still issues there. And again, like that's sort of what Sony tells you when you enable that switch is like we aren't going to magically make every game playable perfectly. If you enable the Switch, there is still some level of intervention that needs to happen from the developer if you want it to be 100% perfect. Uh, But it's better than nothing. I have a trick question. Uh Uh-oh. Do you think the PS5 is going to be able to sustain high frame rates the further we get into the generation? Oh, that is a trick question. Yep. Because fundamentally, we're still in a cross-gen phase right now. Uh, games are still being designed to run on base PS4 and right. Xbox Ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. You know what? I would say no, and not because it won't be capable, but because it will kind of more or less be a, a random limit. I expect at some point we shall see a PS5 Pro. And at this point... I wasn't going to talk about that, but that, that's interesting that you brought it up before me. But yeah, cool. Keep going. And at this point, I wonder if that's what they'll focus on. Meaning that the compared to the PS4, which was the road to four, native 4K, the, the PS5 Pro is road to always on uh, 120 frames per second, if you see what I mean. Ooh, wow, you're you're even more optimistic than I am. Okay, so I, I guess I should reveal the, the actual answer to this question because there okay. I, I think there is a correct answer. Um Uh-oh. 
and it's not a good one. Uh, so as I said, we're in a cross-gen phase right now. Because of this, like engine features that depend on what the PS5 can do, uh, like the additional horsepower of the PS5 isn't really seeing use in games yet, unless you're playing right. a Sony game that is made for the PS5. And what this means is that PS5 has a lot of headroom right now that you can use to push a consistent 60 FPS cap performance for last gen and cross gen games with occasional 120 FPS. Like it's not all games that support 120 FPS. It's like right now, I think it's about a list of 25 games right now on PS5 that support it. Mm -hmm. And game devs, as we know, especially those who aspire to a more cinematic presentation in their games, tend to favor graphical fidelity over frame rate in their games. Uh, you, you look at most of the like cinematic story games on PS5, they're all targeting 30 FPS because they can make the game look more cinematic. And mm -hmm. for a lot of people, that works. Um, the other thing that we have to take into consideration right now is that zero games have shipped with Unreal Engine 5. Uh, Games that are seeking to make use full use of the capabilities of PS5 hardware through UE5 features like Nanite and Lumen. Uh, so Nanite and Lumen, let me explain those two terms. Uh, Nanite is a technology that lets you take full resolution, full quality assets that you would put in a CG movie and use them as assets in a video game and not have to do any level of detailed downscaling of those assets to be used at various levels of distance from that asset. So you are always using the full quality asset and the engine is dynamically removing detail from it instead of wow. pre-baking lower detail versions of that asset at compile time, basically. Huh. So that is one of the tentpole UE5 features. That's the, neat. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Lumen is their entire next generation uh, lighting engine, which is also going to make use of like ray tracing features and all of that stuff, which and Nanite and Lumen can be used together, uh, like we saw in the... Um, actually, I don't know if both were used in the Matrix demo that came out last year, but mm. uh, basically like these two technologies are the two big tentpole features of UE5, and they are for all intents and purposes like only really possible on ps5 and xbox series and pc so if you're making games that are going to use that right now like everyone seems to think at least everyone that has had experience with these technologies seems to think you're going to have to target 30 fps if you want to do a game that uses those features so i'm expecting that we're going to see a split in the ps5 uh two to three years from now where you're going to have like the story-based games that are going to fall around the 30 to 60 FPS range. Maybe they'll offer like quality and performance like we're used to from the PS4 Pro era. And you're going to have competitive esports titles like your Call of Duties and all of that stuff, or remasters of older games that are going to offer 120 FPS modes. Right, and those, to me, though, like 120 frames per second mode in those games makes the most sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, uh, Halo Infinite has 120 FPS modes, and that makes a ton of sense. Call of Duty, uh, like, I, I don't actually own any of the PS5 Call of Duties, but all of those have been 120 FPS, mm. uh, which has me very curious. Uh, if they ever make a Call of Duty I'm interested in, again, maybe I'll check it out. Um, and they were running at 60 on Yeah, they, they've been 60 since PS3. Right, right. So, like, the, like, I think Call of Duty noticed that, like, for competitive 
uh, console shooters, you sort of don't have a choice but to go with 60. And they were very aggressive in pushing like as high quality as they could get at 60 FPS on all of the systems that they've been on. And I would not be surprised if 120 FPS was their target for PS5 going forward. Uh, but they're they're still not on their new engine. Uh, the new game, um, Modern Warfare 2, which is confusing because there are already <laughs> technically two Modern Warfare 2s that exist. Um, but the new Modern Warfare 2 uh, is going to be the first Call of Duty on their next-gen engine. And Warzone 2 is coming out this fall as well, which is also going to be using that engine. So I don't mm. know if that's going to be using 60 or 120. Uh, I guess we'll find out. Um but, but it's just interesting because I listened to the DF Direct episode about uh, the Xbox Summer Games Fest showcase today, and they were talking about how many studios have just given up on their proprietary engines for this generation of consoles and have switched to Unreal Engine 5, which means, uh, well, one, it means that games are probably coming on UE5 sooner than we expected, and two, that a lot of studios are going to be making use of Nanite and Lumen, probably, which means they're probably going to be making 30 FPS console games again. Uh, so, like, the answer to my trick question is probably most big budget titles are going to fall around the 30 to 60 FPS range. And mm-hmm. then, like, maybe Street Fighter, maybe, like, the shooters are going to be at 120 FPS. But there's definitely going to be a divide, and it's not going to be, like everyone on board 60 fps to 120 fps range for the entire console generation and maybe if someday we get a ps5 pro although right now i'm not really trying to think about that because people have enough trouble getting the not pro ps5 right i was curious to know how the situation changed since you bought your ps5 in early january so it's I don't want to spend the rest of the episode on this because it's kind of a long discussion. Uh, But so GPUs are easy to find again. So GPU availability is back. Consoles are not necessarily there. Also, the sale numbers for PS5s and Xbox Series consoles are surprisingly high, which leads you like if you look at the amount of units sold of PS5 and Xbox Series consoles and you look at the people around you who play games, you don't really see that represented in the consoles they have. Yeah, they're all hidden into uh, people's houses that are trying to scam you to buy one or something like that. It's hard to tell if that's what's going on. But it's it's kind of a weird vibe right now where it's like, it's hard to know what the actual addressable market for PS5 is right now. Because they're technically on paper, there are lots of units sold, but you don't get that feeling when you go out in the world. So right. it's it's really strange, and I've never really seen that before. At least like when the Wii was selling out every week, like you knew the people who had the Wiis. They were all the divorced kids. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, uh, you, you know that having twice as many parents to wait in line for you is a, <laughs> is a major buff. <laughs> Wow, wow, wow. But but so it does mean, though, that if I were to go on, let's say, Best Buy or EB Games to buy one... It's still it's hard still to buy. still hard to buy. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I, I was wondering if you were thinking about that because of the Last of Us Part 1 announcement this week. Uh, No, because I didn't watch any of the videos and reviews about that, to be honest. So, like, gaming is not on the top of my mind, so don't worry too much if is that what you meant? Uh, but I'm I'm okay. just going to tell you, it comes out in three months. The re- really? 
Yeah. I was oh. also surprised by that, but yeah. It's, yeah. It's been a long time. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's talk about HDR. Uh, I, I guess you were not, you were, you said you, you were surprised by that because it's short? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, okay. it's, it's rare that uh, Naughty Dog announces games so soon before launch. Oh, okay. I, I guess I'm not used to that. Uh, I'll, I'll believe you. Okay. HDR? Yes. Okay. HDR is dope as hell. Uh, so mm-hmm. HDR for people who aren't in the note basically is the idea that the bright parts of an image are going to be super bright and the dark parts of the image are going to be super dark. Uh, this is generally the, like, it's easiest implemented on OLED displays because on OLED displays, each pixel can be con- uh, controlled individually. So you have more fine grain control over these things. Uh, generally on non OLED displays, you try to cheat with techniques like local dimming zones. Uh, so local dimming zones are a feature on non-OLED displays that break the backlight up into smaller zones that can be individually controlled to allow for parts of a backlight to be at different brightness levels. Uh, the M32U has 16 dimming zones, which is honestly not that much. And reviewers pretty much all agreed that the local dimming on this display sucks. Uh, and I agree. Uh, Artings gave it a 2.5 out of 10. And ouch, uh, when that's I slow, yeah, and when I enabled local dimming, I immediately understood why they said that, so I disabled it immediately. <laughs> oh, okay, so it, it means that you don't really do too much HDR. No, um, it means mm. that I have a more limited HDR implementation, and it's closer uh. to what you see on the iPad with the IPS display that can display HDR content, which doesn't have local dimming zones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not a huge issue to me because I actually really like iPad HDR. And so that's like, it's just more of what I'm used to. Like, obviously, it would be a richer experience uh, if I had an OLED display. Uh, I'll also note that it's HDR 600, which means 600 nits. And generally, like, people seem to think that you want a minimum of 800 to get the true HDR experience. So in a lot of ways, people seem to say like this display is not true HDR and therefore you shouldn't really brand it as such. Um, that said, I really like viewing HDR content on this display, so I'm not really disappointed by it. I, I, I'm, I really like how it looks on my display and therefore like it just gets me more excited for the thought of an eventual display with proper HDR. Um, but since I don't really have a reference point to com- compare with, I'm pretty satisfied. And like the two main examples I can think of where I really uh, see HDR, uh, first of all, is Sekiro. I did the demo to you the other day when you came over. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went to this one level where there is a giant burning village. uh, Like it's an old Japanese village that's on fire. Like I was playing Sekiro before I got the display and then I got the display and I went to that place and I was like, okay, yeah, this is this is really good. I like this. Uh, so uh, Sekiro really sold me on HDR, and it's one of the games, the PS4 games, that was like amongst the highest rated for uh, HDR demos. So uh, I, it's a good thing that I was interested in playing Sekiro as well uh, around that time. So I just got it and eventually turned it into an HDR demo. Uh, so yeah, uh, Sekiro really sold me on it. It looks really good. It's not true HDR, but who cares? Uh, The other thing, (laughs) I can't not talk about YouTube. A friend of the show, Rambalak, uh, has a YouTube channel where they take 4K HDR footage of taking walks around Japan. Uh, So naturally, 
I watch a lot of those now on the mm-hmm. uh, on this display. Uh, actually, I, I also showed you one of those on my display yes. when you were here. I forgot and about that. That demo was, I think, that demo was more impressive than the video games demo. By the way, yeah, yeah, you gotta what, you gotta include the link to that YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorites. Uh, and like the there are just like so many different videos of different situations during the day, during the night. There was one of them where he walks under underground in the uh, metro stations. The, like the network of metro stations underground for like an hour and a half or two hours. It's like one of my favorite videos. Uh, so like, yeah, sitting down in front of one of those HDR videos and taking it in is really, really good. Uh, sometimes there are Yokohama ones and I'm very excited. Uh, so like, that's the other thing is like, I was used to watching them on my iPad, but now having the bigger display to watch those on is really great. Uh, YouTube also has a bunch of like other HDR content. Uh, like sometimes I just like putting jellyfish swimming in HDR Ooh. on my display uh, as just a cool lighting thing in my apartment. Uh, so yeah, I- I'm really enjoying the HDR, even though it's not true HDR. Uh, it looks really good and I'm happy that it's there, even if it's flawed. Okay, let's talk about something different. Let's talk about ghosting. Or like what people call ghosting anyway. Um, So there are like two different kinds of ghosting uh, when we think about what we say when we say ghosting. The first is actual ghosting, uh, which is actually an optical illusion called eye-tracking motion blur. And this is caused by how flat panel displays work. Uh, Flat panels displays work with a technique called sample and hold, which means that Basically, it gets the frame at the monitor's refresh rate and it is held on screen for the length of that interval. And the motion blur that we interpret as ghosting is actually a side effect of how our eyes aren't fully capable of resolving an issue with this kind of pixel persistence as proper motion. And like it's an optical illusion. It's not like if you take a photo of the thing, it's not actually ghosting. It's just your brain is fucking with you. And there are techniques to try to uh, avoid this. Uh, And one of them is called black frame insertion. Uh, So what this does is it behaves like the strobing of a CRT by inserting completely black frames between real frames of video. Uh, This unfortunately does lower the perceived brightness of the monitor by 50%, but it does greatly enhance motion clarity. And I know a lot of retro gamers who swear by this. They say... I used to hate playing retro games on LCDs because of this issue. And since I've enabled black black frame insertion, it feels as close as I'm going to get to playing on a CRT uh, on these kinds of displays. Uh, It generally only works at high frame rates, so like 60 to 120, because the strobing would be too noticeable at lower frame rates. So luckily for me, my monitor has a black frame insertion. It's marketed as aim stabilizer because... Technically, not having any eye-tracking motion blur makes it easier to aim in first-person games. Uh, The only problem is that the menu option is always disabled in the settings control panel, and I don't know why. I'm Hmm. not sure if it's only available on the display port output. I don't know if it's only available above a certain frame rate. Uh, Whenever I go to the menu, it's disabled, so I can't use it, and... I guess if I ever find out how to activate it, I'll return with feedback. This is like the last feature of the display that I'm really curious about, but I can't figure out how to turn it on, which is kind of a problem. Uh, The second kind of ghosting I want to talk about is overshoot, um, which I mean, 
I would personally call it like short-term image retention. Uh, some people also call it reverse ghosting. Uh, basically, it's when a bright object is moving or disappears quickly and it leaves a dark after image. Or the opposite. If, you're, uh, if you've got a dark object that's moving or disappears quickly, it leaves a bright after image. And this is a really weird thing. It seems to have something to do with the amount of voltage that is sent to the pixels on refresh and stuff like that. Um, so monitors have introduced these things called overdrive modes that try to play with the level of voltage that is sent to the pixels at any given time. And uh, this display, if you set it to picture quality mode, has very little overshoot and no real impact on input lag. Uh, so with that overdrive mode enabled, the only place where I notice overshoot is in Gran Turismo 7 when I'm turning my car. There's a little bit of overshoot on the edges of the racing line because there's generally enough contrast between the yellow of the line and the dark gray of the road for there to be that kind of reverse ghosting. Uh, so... It's still there, but it's a massive improvement on my previous monitor, which had much more significant overshoot that it sort of drove me crazy once I noticed it for the first time, and then I never stopped seeing it everywhere. Uh, now it's much more subtle, and I like that about this monitor. I want to talk about the last feature of this display, uh, which is one that made me very excited about this monitor, which is KVM. Uh, so there are three USB-A ports on the back of the monitor, and I hooked up my keyboard and mouse to it. I have my Mac connected via USB-C and my PC via DisplayPort. I have an extra USB-A cable uh, going between the PC and the monitor that is just uh, basically like to hook up the KVM things. Basically, it hooks up the USB hub on the back of the monitor to the PC. So in theory now, well, not in theory because I'm doing it right now, uh, now I can just switch between the two devices at any time and the keyboard and mouse just switch over from one device to the other. There is a KVM button in the upper right-hand corner of the display that I can press that switches between the two when both devices are on. So it's much simpler to swap between the creative machine, which is my Mac and my fun machine. And I no longer need to have two pairs of keyboards and mice uh, sitting here on my setup. I can just have one and it's a lot cleaner and I like that a lot. There's a lot less cables uh, all over the place. Uh, so KVM is not that common a feature, surprisingly, amongst gaming monitors. And this one is implemented really, really well. Uh, you have the control panel where you can actually set which video uh, input is using the USB-A link because the USB-C one is naturally using USB-C because it's already there. Uh, but you can use it on any input. So it can be HDMI 1, HDMI 2, and uh, DisplayPort. Uh, and theoretically, if you're using something that only supports uh, the display over USB-C but not IO for some reason over USB-C. You can also wire it up using USB-A. So you have a lot of customizability for all of the different kinds of scenarios you could find yourself with in this KVM solution. Uh, and it's really, really cool. It works really, really well. I thought there was going to be more issues than I actually had in practice so far. I've never had an issue. It works great. I'm really happy. And like the fact that it's stapled onto a monitor that is so good at everything else is like the cherry on top. It's perfect. So in conclusion, I'm very happy with my display. Uh, obviously, like I, as I've said, it's not perfect. Uh, the HDR is its biggest weakness in a lot of ways. Um, I wish I knew how to enable that black frame insertion thing because it's it, it sounds very interesting. I'm not sure I would necessarily always play with it because it would lower the brightness by half 
if I had it on all the time. But I'm just curious and I want to tinker with it. Uh, and the frame rate stuff is fantastic. It works really great. Uh, the resolution looks really good. I don't know. It's it, Despite all of the issues with HDMI 2.1's launch and the spec, if you're a technical person and you can figure it out, once it's all set up, it works really, really well. And I like it a lot. And I'm very happy with my purchase. And I'm excited to do more gaming on this uh, over the summer and over the rest of the year. Good. Is that it? Yeah. So I'm sure Yannick will have a lot of links in the show notes. And said show notes can be found at limitlesspossibility.net slash 186. That is 186. You can also find our back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show note, uh, the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L I M I P O underscore podcast. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Lukunosh. That's L U C C O N O U C H E. And you can find Yannick at Sakarina. That's S A K U R I N A. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. <laughs>